When I was 18, I took a trip around the world, literally around the world. I flew from Washington, D.C. to Germany, went through Germany on the trains, uh, went through uh, Europe on the trains, and then continued east and went all the way around till I ended up on the west coast of the United States uh, four months later. Uh, along the way, I would write my dad periodically and just give an update, and I would write it on something, I don't know if they still have them, but it was called an aerogram. And it was a very thin sheet of paper that you would write on and then fold, and it was the envelope and the letter all together. And this is one that I wrote in New Delhi, India. And according to the stamps, I, I don't remember, but according to the stamps, I mailed it when I was in Thailand. And it just kind of highlights some specific things that jumped out at me because, and, and perhaps you've had the same experience. When you're on a trip, when you're traveling, your senses, uh, all of your senses are heightened and you're kind of paying a special attention and you notice things that are different and it sticks out to you and you kind of log them in your brain. Interestingly enough, I, I think Luke kind of knew that about human nature because the way he organized his gospel, the gospel of Luke, is right in the center in the heart of what he's going to talk about, he organizes it as if it was a travelogue of Jesus's trip. Beginning in chapter 9, verse 51, it says that Jesus resolutely set his face to Jerusalem. And then for the next 10 chapters, Luke says over and over, and on his way, and while they were traveling, and then they came upon, and as he makes this winding trip from up north in Galilee all the way down to uh, uh, to Jerusalem, uh, uh, Luke is giving us an insight into what this journey looked like, the experiences and the teachings. And many of those on this travel, uh, on this journey, are unique to Luke. Uh, these are the only places we're going to find these stories. And so Luke wanted to make sure we pay attention because following Jesus on this trip, as he makes his way towards Jerusalem, we're going to find different people and different experiences that will allow Jesus to give some teaching that are extremely important for us as we think about what it really means to follow Jesus. Now, in today's text, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is going to meet two people who just don't quite get what the kingdom of God is all about. Uh, the first one is a lawyer. And before we think about modern day lawyers, we need to keep in mind when the Bible talks about lawyers, it's talking about an expert in the law of Moses, a religious expert is how the New Living Translation translates that. So we have this expert in the law, and then we have a woman named Martha. Two totally different situations, and Jesus' response to them are also quite different. To the man, he says at the end, go and do. And to Martha, he basically says, sit and listen. These stories seem to be about opposite things, but actually there's a thread that ties them together because they both have to do with following Jesus and listening to what he says. Listening and obeying 
in a way that goes against perhaps common cultural conventional wisdom, different kinds of societal norms, but truly following after Jesus. So we're going to read Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and following. The text says, One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed over to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the religious expert replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, Martha, Martha, Martha. Well, actually, the text says, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will, be not, it will not be taken away from her. These stories are so familiar to us that they have become a part of our culture. I mean, we have Good Samaritan hospitals and clinics, and we have uh, Good Samaritan laws that protect people that stop and try and help out. And sometimes with stories that are so familiar that we know how it goes, it's, it's hard to hear them and hard to allow them to kind of get to us and have that same kind of an impact. But we're going to give it a try. Beginning with the Good Samaritan, the lawyer, 
the religious expert asks Jesus two questions. The first question seems innocent enough. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? But Luke tells us it was a test, that this religious expert was trying to test Jesus and trip him up with this question. And I guess part of it is because the religious expert is combining doing something with inheriting something. Typically, to get an inheritance, especially in a, a spiritual inheritance like this, eternal life, you really didn't have to do anything. What Jews understood and believed that in order to inherit eternal life, one simply had to be born into the right family, the family of Abraham. And if you were a descendant of Abraham, upon birth you automatically were an heir to the throne or to the riches that Abraham's blessings would offer. And the reason it was a trap for Jesus is because Jesus hasn't been sticking to just helping out people who were descendants of Abraham. Jesus has given God's blessings to Jews and Gentiles, to those accepted by society and those who were outside of those norms. If Jesus would have given the traditional answer, he would be admitting that his ministry was only for the house of Israel. And, and all of the things that he had done, like when he healed the centurion, the Roman centurion's child, all of that would have been cast aside. But Jesus doesn't answer. He responds with a question about what does the religious expert read in the law of Moses? He asked this question and it kind of begins to unsettle the religious expert a little bit. He says, okay, you're such a smart guy. You study the law. What does the law say that you should do to inherit eternal life? Now, the religious expert answers correctly. He says, love God and love your neighbor. We've discovered, I say we, uh, they have, scientists have discovered, archaeologists and others have discovered uh, different writings that have combined loving God and loving neighbor is what God expects uh, before Jesus even said it as the greatest command. It was already common knowledge in early first century Palestine. And so the religious leader asks, answers correctly, but he's feeling threatened somehow. The ground has shifted. He's not the one in control asking the questions. And so the text tells us he wants to justify himself. Evidently, as he's thought about what does it mean to love your neighbor, he's thinking about perhaps people that he's helped and who his neighbors were. But now he finds Jesus on the road in a different kind of a context, and Jesus has been helping people that aren't neighbors. <laughs> he's been helping non-neighbors. And so he's not sure what Jesus is thinking, so he says, who is my neighbor? Surely Jesus can't mean that everybody's my neighbor. That would be ludicrous. But Jesus uses a parable to disarm him. You know, the stories that Jesus tells in parables uh, were to try and help people lower their defenses so that the message of truth could get in. 
If he would have told this man, well, what you need to do is if you see a Samaritan lying in a ditch, you need to help him. He's your neighbor. Well, that would have just gone right over the, uh, the, the, the religious expert's head. He would have closed his heart and then it would have been over. But, but, but I think what Jesus wants to do is to help this religious expert get past some of those initial prejudices. And so rather than trying to imagine, are, are you like a priest or are you like a Levite or are you like the Samaritan? I think where Jesus wants this religious expert to see himself is, is in the ditch. A certain man. And the New Living Translation adds a Jewish man. He was most certainly a Jewish man. Could have been anyone like even a religious expert. And there he is by the side of the road, and here comes the priest. Surely the priest will stop because I'm one of his. I'm one of his group. I'm one of his neighbors. But the priest didn't recognize him, perhaps because he was nude or just with his inner garments, perhaps because he was unconscious. text doesn't tell us why, but he crossed over. The Levite, the temple employee or administrator, the temple attendant, did the same thing. They were probably too concerned about either not fulfilling their duty in the temple or contaminating themselves and having to quarantine themselves for a while, or, or perhaps they were afraid that they were going to fall into a scam and so they didn't want to get taken or uh, taken advantage of. But, but now you're this half-dead, beaten, robbed person in the ditch. And who comes along? The person you most despise. It's hard to capture the level of disdain that Jews had for Samaritans. It goes beyond a lot of what we might see in today's world. But Samaritans were half-breeds, and they were half-breeds in a purebred culture. Samaritans were traitorous religious heretics. They only accepted a small part of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. And now Jesus has made the Samaritan the hero, the one who does good. The religious expert, I'm sure, is feeling uncomfortable. Would he allow himself to be helped by a Samaritan? Would he accept that help? Or would he say, over my dead body, (laughs) which could have happened realistically, And so he begrudgingly accepts that, yeah, this traitorous half-breed was the one who was most like a neighbor. Then, and only then, does Jesus say, go and be that kind of neighbor. Be that kind of person. So, So the moral of the story isn't that we should imitate the Samaritan because we're good people and that's what good people do. That's not really the point. It is much broader and deeper than that. I I think it has a lot to do with you can't really begin to get this message until you see yourself as someone who has been rescued and saved. 
And only when you have experienced that compassion will you start to look with compassion towards other people. The way of life that leads to eternal life, which is what the religious expert wanted to know about, that way of life means helping and sometimes being helped because that's what following Jesus looks like. It means accepting help from people that you perhaps would never talk to in your real life. It means helping people that you traditionally would never even give a second glance. And what Jesus is calling all of us to do is to break out of these maddening stereotypes that we've used for so long to justify why we don't help certain people. They're not one of us. And rather than looking at a person's skin color or, or, or looking at their gender or, or listening to the language they speak or, or, or looking at what bumper sticker they have on their car or whether they're uh, blue or red or elephants or donkeys or whether they're a part of this church or that church, whether they are a friend or an enemy. Jesus challenges all of us to not allow those external, superficial, and ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, unimportant things, to determine whether the compassion in our heart flows out. This compassion is the same compassion that Jesus had when he raised a widow's only son from death. It's the compassion he has when he sees his people needing help. He doesn't sit to analyze whether they deserve it. Doesn't sit to analyze are you in or you out. He simply moves to help. Now the next story seems to say exactly the opposite. <laughs> Jesus is going to tell Martha to stop helping I mean, Martha was just doing what society and tradition expected from her. When you have a guest come to your home, you show hospitality. And you do everything you can to make this person feel welcome. Well, Jesus stops by her house. Her sister is there, Mary. Mary doesn't speak, doesn't get much of a mention. What Mary does is she plops down at the feet of Jesus and listens to him while he's talking to all the other men in the room. Now, before we're too hard on Martha, anyone who has ever had a job where they've had to take up the slack for someone who wasn't doing their work, they know what Martha's feeling. Anytime you've been assigned a group project, and you're the only one in the group that's really doing all the work, you, you know what Martha's feeling. Anytime you're a part of a team and everyone else on the team are slackers and you feel like you're the only one working, you know what Martha is feeling. 
But Jesus doesn't really seem to want to tell Mary to help. He seems to be siding with Mary. And that has led to this idea that that the complete, the completive, uh, no, uh, the um, complete, uh, I can't even speak today. Uh, the, the contemplative life is better than the working hard life. It's better to sit and do nothing than to be hyperactive. But that's not the point here at all. That's not the point at all. Martha complains, Lord, don't you care? And Jesus kind of says, yeah, no, not really. Not really. You know, I want to think that he's smiling when he's talking to Martha. She's probably got her hair frazzled. She's sweating. She's got dough up her sleeves. And and she's just frantically trying to get everything ready. And he says, Martha, dear friend, you are worried and distracted by so many things. So when Jesus talks to Martha, he's not talking to busy, conscientious, hospitable Martha. Jesus is talking to worried and distracted Martha. She's gotten herself in a tizzy over her anxious distraction over the meal. She's focused her frustration on Mary, who's not doing anything, and on Jesus who's kind of complicit in all this. And Jesus gently calls her to refocus. Hospitality is not about the food. It's about the people. It's about paying attention to the people that you have in front of us. And that's one of the things that that I personally appreciate about Jesus' encounters with people on this journey and elsewhere. Whenever he's with someone, he is focused and he is with them. He pays attention to them, whether it's a child or an older person, whether it's a person of his religious heritage or not. Jesus is connecting with Mary. He's also connecting with Martha. He's connecting with this religious expert. Because see, both the religious expert and, and Martha are kind of focusing on themselves. This is what, who is my neighbor? What do I need to do to get out of this? And Martha, in her speech, focuses on me herself. Three times she says, me, this is my work and no one's helping me. And how come you're doing this to me? A few years ago, Tom Friedman uh, had a column in the op-ed page of the New York Times called The Taxi Driver. He told of taking a cab from Charles de Gaulle Airport to the city of Paris. And during the one-hour trip, he and the driver had done six things. The driver had driven the cab, talked on his cell phone, and watched a video, which kind of freaked out the uh, author. (laughs) And Friedman had been writing, working on his column on his laptop, and listening to his iPad or iPod. He said there was only one thing we didn't do, and that was to talk to one another. Friedman then goes on to quote Linda Stone, a technologist who had written that the disease of the Internet age is continuous partial attention. 
Perhaps it's not only the disease of the Internet age, maybe it's been around for quite some time. You know, it's hard not to be distracted by details. Even as we're watching this transmission, something might appear on the chat, and it's hard for us not to get distracted by what the chat's saying and, and who's saying this and what's saying who's saying that. Uh, sometimes the, the level of volume is disturbing and it kind of throws us out of balance. Or, 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 or maybe there's something in the background or there's a noise. All of those things serve to distract us. And we can't help that. But when we choose to focus on the distractions, we so easily lose focus of who we're with and, and what are we doing. Both of these stories point to a radical obedience that, it, that, that is necessary for us to truly follow Jesus on this journey. Remember, the destiny, the goal of his journey is Jerusalem, which will mean his death and his glorification. The parable of the Good Samaritan calls for radical obedience that breaks through cultural, ethnic, and even theological barriers. The story of Mary or Martha and Mary calls for a radical obedience to put the relationship we have with God and with others before all of our tasks. And it even allows a woman to become a disciple, to sit at her rabbi's feet, which in first century Judaism was not that common. Two greatest commands, love God and love your neighbor. And here Luke has put these stories side by side to show us what it looks like to be a neighbor who loves truly all people and also what it looks like to be a follower who focuses on the relationships, not on all the periphery issues. So my goal and my challenge for all of us today as we go through this week is to continue to love God and love our neighbor to the point that it raises eyebrows, to the point that it calls questions in, to the point that we ourselves might even feel a little uncomfortable. Because when we feel uncomfortable, when we're doing what God wants, I think we're in good company.